Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, July 24th, 2019 edition of our little weather get together. Tonight is show number 285. And tonight we have with us Dr. Ian Giametko. Uh, he is the lead research meteorologist at the Institute uh, Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety. We're going to be talking about hail and some of the research they've done with hail, but also kind of what they, uh, what they do and how uh, their work is there to help you and your home and help protect your home during adverse weather. So uh, we're happy to have Ian on with us tonight. He is a fellow Carolinian uh, currently in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and I kind of connected the dots today. You've probably seen uh, the... Uh, in, uh, Insurance Institute of, for Business and Home Safety on your local television stations. If you live here in the Carolinas, a lot of the meteorologists do some uh, some tapes in their wind tunnel and kind of show you uh, some of the wind and uh, hail studies that they do. So you've probably seen Ian's workplace before. Now you get to see the guy who works there. So uh, we are happy to have Ian on with us tonight. Uh, this is a live broadcast. So we would love for you to interact with us tonight. You can do that many different ways. You're probably watching right now on Periscope, on Facebook Live, Twitch, or you are watching on our YouTube page. All you got to do is uh, submit some questions. Uh, type out a comment or a question in those uh, comment bars, and they will be directed right to us, and we can ask questions or answer comments throughout the show. And if you're listening on the podcast version, uh, we'll let Ian give out some information on how you can get uh, better informed um, maybe via website or social media. We'll let Ian do that towards the end of the show. So, again, this is show number 285. I do want to say, uh, before we get to the news segment later on, I do want to say just out of the National Weather Service in Raleigh, North Carolina, they have confirmed two tornadoes from yesterday's storm. Those storms that we were streaming here live yesterday, uh, they produced two, two tornadoes, and we'll talk about that more in our new segment. So let's get to tonight's interview. Let's bring in Ian. And Ian, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. This is uh, kind of your uh, your, your first uh, gig with us. And I told you before the show, we, we're no, glad to know you're in the Carolinas. So uh, hopefully we can have you back on. But as uh, as a first-time guest, we'd kind of like to know your weather story. How did, uh, how did you get hooked up into this crazy uh, world that we call weather? Yeah, so um, I'm I'm pretty similar to a lot of meteorologists. Where it was a, as a as a kid, I got interested in the weather, and, and I can kind of trace it back to um, my dad. I remember showing me the 1985 Nova Tornado Special. Um, so that kind of dates me just a little bit. Yeah, I'm closing in on 40, um, but that's the thing. As a kid, I was six years old, and it, and it really got me interested in weather. But what really sealed the deal was in '92. Um, I grew up in South Louisiana, so Hurricane La Hurricane Andrew's landfall, the, the last one after South Florida, we all remember South Florida, uh, was in South Louisiana, and so. As a kid, it did impact Baton Rouge a little bit where I was living. So all I wanted to do was basically just be like Jim Cantori and be outside and in, in this uh, this hurricane that was making landfall in South Louisiana. And that just sealed the deal. Uh, from then on, I knew I wanted to be in weather somehow, some way. Um, and it wasn't until grad school that I realized that, that research was where I wanted to be. Um, but, you know, starting all the way back when I was about six years old was, was when I kind of grew an interest in weather and and really all the earth sciences. So um, it's a pretty similar story to a lot of a lot of meteorologists out there. And is it normally is that one storm or that one event that kind of gets our uh, our attention and gets us hooked into this this uh, crazy weather world? Well, let's talk about what you do at the IBHS. Uh, tell us about 
uh, the Institute and kind of what, uh, what all goes on there in uh, Richburg, South Carolina. Yeah, uh, our lab here in South Carolina was uh, built and, and opened in the fall of 2010. IBHS as an entity has been around almost since the 70s. It can trace its root back to a few different names and, and basically started as an adv- advocacy group uh, to help people better prepare for, for severe weather and try to reduce the losses associated with severe weather. Well, in 2010, our, our research center opened. Uh, and we're taking uh, the, the model of the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety. So think about car crash tests. Um, it's been highly successful. The property insurance industry wanted to apply that to severe weather. And so $40 million later in the midst of our economic recession, uh, trying to, to, to bring that facility to life, uh, we have our lab. And it is a, a pretty neat place. Uh, our centerpiece is a full-scale uh, wind tunnel. We call it our large test chamber. Uh, we have 105 six-foot diameter fans that can take winds up to about 120, 130 miles per hour. Uh, we can do full-scale hail simulations. We can do wildfire ember attack scenarios in there. Uh, basically, anything the weather is out there, we can, we can throw at it. Um, and our, our goal is to understand how all these different hazards associated with severe weather attack structures. How can we build better? What are the systems that we can improve? Uh, and how do we show people those steps uh, that resilience is affordable and then we can start to bend down the loss curve uh, that we see growing and growing each year? Very cool. Very cool. You know, the, tonight's show is basically centered around hail. So tell me a little bit more about one, to go start basic. How do we get hail and how do you do a hail simulation? That sounds really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, you know, most most intense thunderstorms have hail aloft in them. Um, it can grow from um, um, particles uh, that freeze or, or grapple, kind of those those melted snowflake conglomerate things. And as they make their kind of horizontal arcing traverse through a thunderstorm, they can collect more ice and water and essentially grow and grow. Um, sometimes they become too heavy and fall out and, and get down to the ground. Sometimes they fall and then they melt before they get down to us. And other times they can hang around up there in a thunderstorm and get really, really, really big uh, and then fall down. And those are the ones that can break things. Um, once you get above that kind of inch and a half or so threshold, that's when you start seeing uh, legitimate property damage. Now for cars, it's a little bit less. Um, but for us, it's um, duplicating the properties of hailstones in the lab. And we can we can propel them or fire them at at materials, uh, basically using electronic control potato guns. So in our small lab, we have a, a single, uh, uh, actually we have two setups, um, basically cannons with barrels that that have a pressurized air tank, and we calibrate that to an exit velocity and associated kinetic energy that would a hailstone would have when it hits things. Now in our big chamber, if if you ever come to visit us. You can go out in there and look straight up and you'll see a whole bunch of light pieces of PVC pipe. Well, that are the barrels that can basically put down a swath of hail across the footprint of our our large test chamber. We can do uh, three different sizes and shoot as fast as one per second. So uh, really unique piece of capability. I do a lot of work both in the small lab, very meticulous scientific testing, but we can also test the full roof system on a building. Very cool. So you, you you have a job destroying things with hail. That sounds really fun. <laughs> That's a, a little bit of what we do. We uh, we we try to we try to break things in the lab so it doesn't happen out in the real world. Very cool. Very cool. Well, tell us, you know, from a meteorology standpoint, you know, what regions are most prone to hail, and what seasons are most prone to hail, and things like that. 
Yeah, so so anywhere really east of the Rockies has a, a hail problem. We would say that, that hail events do occur. Uh, of course, in the region we would think of as Tornado Alley, you could almost call it Hail Alley. That's where we see the highest frequency of the really large, the two-inch-plus type hail events uh, that occurs every year. If you actually look at the probability of a severe hail event occurring in Oklahoma City or Dallas each year, it's, it's like 100%. Um, now, if you shift over further east, you know, we still get hail events even out where we are. Uh, I know this year the Raleigh area had a few hail events. Uh, Philadelphia got hailed on this year, even some areas up in the northeast. Um, so typical, like you'd see across the globe, anywhere east of a giant, a really big mountain range with a supply of moisture, ours being the Gulf of Mexico, uh, you can get those conditions that come together to produce hail storms. And, and here in the U.S., we're no different. Now, with that said, hail has occurred in all 50 states. Um, but the most prevalent areas really are east of the Rocky Mountains. Understood. Thank you, Ian. Um, that was really interesting. I can't wait to tell my friends and, and family that you guys shoot uh, hail out of potato guns for testing. So that's, that's kind of cool. Um, talk about some of the hail studies that you do in the lab. You mentioned something earlier about recreating hail crystals and, and you're actually yeah. building hail in the, in the environment in which it forms. Talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, we... Uh... We manufacture laboratory hailstones. So part of it was taking a lot of information that we gathered from our field research program, bringing it back to the lab. And what I mean by that is understanding how strong hail is, understanding the density, the diameter relationships, and some of the aerodynamic properties. Uh, we then, with that strength information and density information, we have a target to shoot for and how we would manufacture laboratory hailstones. So we have a system, I kind of call it the most fancy, sophisticated ice machine on the planet. Uh, that can actually do that. Now, it doesn't actually follow the same process that would be produced in a thunderstorm, but we end up with the same result. We essentially engineer the ice, even down to some of the layering structures to match. And we have those strength targets that we can we can achieve. Uh, and that basically leads us into to what hail can do and how strong it is when it hits things. So what we found out because of the strength, it can do about three different things when it hits your roof. It can bounce off, that's really hard hail. It can shatter, that's kind of the hard to medium, or it can just become really slushy, um, that's the very soft hail. And all of those have different kind of types of damage that they produce on your roof. The soft will kind of dislodge all those granules, the, the, hard, uh, the hard bounces and shatters will, will do more cracks and dents. Um, so we realized all that stuff was ma mattered and we needed to simulate it in the lab and also repeat it. You know, that's that's scientific testing right there is being able to repeat this stuff uh, over and over and over again. And after about eight years of work, um, we released uh, a, a new hail impact test standard for, for asphalt shingles. And we have our uh, um, actually we rated the products that are um, considered impact rated. Um, and we have a rating scale that's actually out on our website now. So if you're looking to get a, 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 a roof that's more resilient to hail, I would encourage folks to check that out. It's at IBHS.org. You'll see what products are out there and which ones uh, meet the top of our class and which ones are at the bottom and uh, where you might want to be. Fantastic. Thank you for that answer. Very detailed. Appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I was wondering if you guys could recreate hail like grapefruit size, like what they get in Texas, you know, the gigantic. You know, it looks like it looks like a, a small brain, you know, I mean, just the way that it develops. It's really wild. Usually here uh, east, of, or, yeah, east of the Appalachians, a lot of times. You get you get larger hail upstate, but then you get to the coast, and the and the hail core is lower, so it's, it mm -hmm. melts fat. It's a faster melting rate, so you end up with kind of slushy, smaller hail hail here. But talk about um, the size and how much damage hail creates while we're on the topic. I'd love to hear your your take on that. 
Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize, hey, we kind of joke is the Rodney Danger field of the severe convective storm hazards. It doesn't get any respect, but in any given year, it's about 60 to 80% of the dollar damage from severe thunderstorms. That's a lot. And we're in probably what will be the 12th straight year of damage totaling over $10 billion. Um, so it's a big piece of the damage that comes from severe thunderstorms every year. Now, to start when you start talking about damage thresholds, of course, we have the National Weather Service severe criteria of one inch. That's when we really start to see some, some issues, dents and things with auto. On the building side, if you start looking at roofing materials, once you get close to that inch and a half mark, that's when you can potentially see some damage. Now, there's a lot of things at play, uh, age of roofs, age of materials, all that, the wind-driven aspect. Um, now, we can go all the way out to the extreme size. If once you get to about three and a half, four-inch hail, that will puncture the plywood roof deck that you have. So you're thinking fall speeds close to 100 miles an hour, um, pretty uh, intense hail. And we've seen those kind of events, say Denton, Texas, a few years ago. Um, uh, there was a... a the Arkansas event, the Vandervoort one this year, with had you know potentially record hail. It didn't quite verify the record, but once you get out on that size, you're talking about you know, hailstones coming through your roof deck, and and it actually creates more problems from a damage perspective because then you can get water entry into your home, and once water comes in, you're talking dollar amounts, and the fact that you're probably going to have to deal with a, a legitimate uh, issue inside and potentially be out of your house for a little while when it gets taken care of. Yeah, that is something I hope we never have to see here in the Carolinas. Uh, I'm sure it's happened before, but that's that size hail, very rare here. So I don't know what's more interesting, the the work that y'all do in the lab or the fact that you also have field work. Um, tell us a little bit about your field work and what y'all have done over the years. Yeah, so so way back in uh, 2012, we decided we, we there was all this hail data we needed to go get about strength, um, kind of mapping out density, improving aerodynamics. Hail research really kind of stalled after about the early 1980s, really once kind of weather modification became kind of taboo a little bit in our, our field. Um, and a lot of the, the the tests and how we test buildings were all rooted in information going back all the way to the 1930s. So nobody had looked at this stuff for a while. Plus, we didn't know what, what strength actually did. Uh, there was no data on it. Um, so like any good scientist, we just, hey, let's go to the field and let's go measure it. Um, let's go look. Um, we kind of use the motto, you can learn a lot just by looking. And we kind of took that approach with hail. So we started out back then going out to the field, collecting hailstones after a thunderstorm, doing crush tests, basically measuring the amount of force it took to crush the hailstone. That's how we get to the strength, um, making very detailed measurements of them, weighing them all. Uh, and we did that for about really four or five years. That was our focus to collect this really big data set, which is now somewhere over you know, near 4,000 different hailstones that we've tested um, and to guide how we did the lab work that we just talked about. We needed that guide to be able to give us that information. Um, now we've switched a little bit. We, we now go to mapping hail swaths using deployable instruments. Um, I come from a, a background at Texas Tech where we built a lot of deployable weather instruments. So I took that and applied it to hail. Uh, so we have a network of about 18 um, impact sensors that can measure the impact energy of hail. And we can actually deploy them ahead of a thunderstorm and look at what the, the, the size distribution is within that particular storm and how it varies and changes within the swath. That's really, really important for how we look at radar hail detection, uh, even looking into how numerical weather prediction um, manages hail. And how did it go this year? Oh, two, two good missions for us. Spent about, uh, I think about 
think we spent about 12 days total in the field. Ended up, my target was somewhere, I think, um, five to seven total cases. I think we were right there at seven, um, which is really, really good for us. Um, so, yeah, we, we that's usually the case. We spend about somewhere 10 to 14 days each year in the field. Um, and we'll continue this going into uh, 2020. Yeah, talk about some of the more memorable cases that you guys have covered, maybe some of the more interesting uh, field tests that you guys have done um, over the past couple of years. Yeah, for, for Hale, um, a couple of years ago, intercepted a supercell near uh, Eric, Oklahoma, that produced just this really narrow swath of just really big three-inch hail uh, with a concentration maybe you know, 10 to 12 or so per square foot. That's a lot for big hail. Um, it was the first time we got our instruments into hail that size. So that was kind of a unique experience for us. Now, a memorable case, um, and this goes back all the way back to, I think, 2013 or 2014 when we were doing a lot of those crush tests. We encountered some hail. This was in Montana. Um, what we kind of think of as, as low-density, spongy-type hail that when you crushed it, it actually deformed almost like a sponge but held its shape. It actually didn't fracture. And there's some literature out there that, that talks about how these hailstones can come about. But talk about kind of blow your mind of, of how complicated hail can be. The, the fact you could get this spongy kind of hail that you could compress, it basically just did that and then held its shape even after you took the load off of it. It never broke. Um, I'm guessing those are rare. Um, we have yet, we haven't seen that again. It was one particular case and I, I don't know what kind of environment might produce that, but it's really unique and it's always been a memorable one from uh, looking at, at hailstones. And I, I've seen a fair bit of them. Next question is, okay, so we got, we got a, a hail threat, right? So how do we tell businesses and, and homeowners how to protect, better protect their property from hail? Um, I mean, we've seen events where you know, windshields are damaged. It's not like you can go out with an umbrella, right? I mean, it's, yep. <laughs> you got to yeah. have some some things in place, right? So give us a right. idea on that. That's right. Um, so hail is one of those things. It's hard to take a lot of quick action. One of the things you can do, make sure you can get your car in your garage if you have one. If you're like me, you got all sorts of stuff in the garage. I couldn't get my truck in there if I tried. Um, but that's a step you can take is make sure you can get your car under cover. And maybe, you know, say we're under a higher risk for a particular day. Um, if you can find a way to keep that vehicle covered, um, that's one way to reduce your auto damage. Now, for homes, it's a lot trickier. Um, when if, if you're in an area that sees a lot of hailstorms, this is think about the folks in Tornado Alley. If you live in Dallas, um, Oklahoma City, Wichita, we, we saw how sick of people were of hail in, in Dallas this year by they're putting pool noodles on cars and inflatable mattresses. And I'm sure they're tired of getting new roofs every two years. Um, so I'd encourage people to look at our impact rated shingle test results and look for those good performing products. There are uh, uh, impact rated shingles that do perform and, and we tested up to two inch uh, and those top performers really do perform very well. So um, there are products out there from a roof perspective that I would encourage homeowners to look at and talk to your insurance agent too, because in a lot of cases you can get a discount for some of these things. Uh, and it can almost pay for itself over time if you look at the cost discrepancy. So that's something to really you know do your homework with. We 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 shop everything these days. Why not shop your roof? Um, but that unfortunately for hail, you know, you you can take those steps, but there's not a whole lot you can do right before an event. Unfortunately, uh, there's a few commercial products out there that are trying to protect vehicles. We don't know how well they work, um, but that's 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 the deal with hail. How about for businesses? We talk about, you know, you own a business, you have a building, you have roof, uh, you have items up on the roof, you have your HVAC units, you have 
um, satellite dish. I mean, what, whatever instrumentation you have up there, is there anything we can tell business owners? Hey, look, be aware of what's on your roof at all times. Maybe, you know, add something, some sort of protective mechanism over the top of anything, anything of that nature. For, for commercial structures, for HVAC, that's a very good point because there are some some shields that can be made that actually surround HVAC units that from what we've been able to tell, um, looking at their performance, they, they do they do a decent job. And HVAC, just the damage to the, the fins and coils in an HVAC system can be very, very expensive. So there are a few steps you can take if you're a business owner there. Um, we're going to get into the commercial roof testing space as over the coming years, especially I think we're going to start ramping that up even as early as next year. So we'll start to look at impact testing on commercial roofs. We're a little bit more complicated than, than our normal home. Um, but again, yeah, we're looking for those good performing materials and to be able to offer some, some more detailed and better guidance than what's currently out there. Great. Thank you. I think Evan had a question as well. Yeah, this is a kind of a lighthearted question, um, which you kind of answered, but I'll ask it anyways. So over the last year, we've seen several pictures on social media of people covering their car with pool noodles. Is that something that can be effective for small hail? But once you get to big hail, there's really no idea. Yeah, that, that's a really good one. Um, you would imagine, yeah, the, you know, once you get maybe above two inches or so, maybe it, it's not going to work. But it, I've been more impressed by just watching all of it, seeing how tired. It, it's kind of a social science research in itself seeing how tired people are of um, of dealing with hail. They're so fed up with it. They're tying their, their swimming pool floats to their cars. And there, there may be some merit to it. Um, who knows? But the last thing, though, we want people to do is running out there trying to do that when they're under a severe thunderstorm warning. Or we know tornadic storms produce big hail, too. That's not what we want people doing in that scenario, uh, is running outside trying to protect their car. Um, I know it, it's a hassle and it's a lot of money and all that, but but your life is more important. Um, so that's the one thing that always that always worries me a little bit is, is making sure people don't don't pull the trigger too late when when um, they're in harm's way. It's an interesting trend, though. Folks getting a little bit creative, maybe putting it yeah. staging it on their vehicles before the event happens that day and, and leaving like they go to work, they leave it out in the parking lot for the whole day. It almost makes you wonder if the auto industry may pick up on that sign in some time here and see what kind of solutions they come up with. Yeah. Yeah. You could certainly see that. Um, I know car deal, it's a huge source of loss, even some of the big outdoor car warehouse facilities. Uh, and you see it a lot more. I've noticed this as the time and time again, going back to West Texas and even the Oklahoma city area, a lot more awnings showing up now to try to protect those, those new vehicles at dealerships. That That's a big dollar value there. And so, Ian, you guys uh, at the Institute, you guys are located here in the Carolinas, and many folks may not know that. Um, how did you guys choose the Carolinas? And then kind of talk about not only hail that you guys uh, are really doing some work on, but you're also doing work on wind and, and some of the, uh, the things. Talk a little bit about the wind research you guys are doing. Yeah, so um, the the lab came about um, in the Carolinas. There, there was kind of a, a little bit of a bidding process, and this is before my time at IVHS. Uh, we, we wanted to be away from the immediate hurricane coastline. Um, that's uh, having a facility like that that could damage by a significant hurricane um, was a concern uh, for our, our membership. Uh, so that's one reason why we're, we're a fair bit away from the coast. Um, we had a power requirement and we wanted to be um, within a certain distance, basically an hour's drive from a hub airport. Um, so what was settled on was essentially kind of the, the general Charlotte area. Uh, and we had two uh, two sites that were the original ones. Um, one was um, closer to Gastonia on the just across the South Carolina border up on you know, I-85. 
and then there's the site that we currently had. And we ended up with a really, really nice um, uh, package from the, the community down here in, in Chester County. Uh, our, our plot size was a lot larger. Um, we did have some noise concerns, so that, that also uh, played a role. Um, and they had the power requirements they need. We're right next to a transmission uh, line, and we had a uh, substation on site. So 105 electric medium voltage drives uh, power the fans, and, and we need some juice. So um, it all came to fruition, and, and there we are out in the, out in Chester County. And so talk about, uh, you were talking about hurricanes. Talk about some of the wind studies that you guys do there. You yep. have this big wind tunnel, and you actually have uh, some model scale homes, and you can do all kind of testing it in this facility. The very unique thing about about our facilities that is, is that we can do full scale home testing. We can look at a full home system, and that's really important from a wind perspective to understand how the wind forces are essentially transferred through all the different connections that are within your home, uh, roof to wall, through the walls, wall to foundation, and all the connections in between. You have to really look at it in a system perspective to understand how wind essentially attacks structures and what you can do to mitigate it. So we do a bit of garage door vulnerabilities. I was seeing that garage doors can be a huge damage amplifier. Think about it, they're, they're a big hole, really, if they fail in your house. That allows wind to get in and start acting inward, pushing up and out. Uh, and can lead to failures. And there's other scenarios where the home can start to fail first and then the garage door and, and, and the damage progression starts. Uh, so we're doing a whole slew looking at full-scale garage door tests right now uh, to look at their performance. Uh, we've seen that time and time again in hurricanes and tornadoes that that can be a place where damage can start. And with wind, once you start the damage cascade, it, it just goes. Um, tornadoes, it happens very, very fast. Hurricanes, it can happen over the course of say six to 12 hours. Um, but that cascade is what we're trying to stop, start, stop the start of that. Um, and we think we can uh, find those mitigation solutions that are not only um, useful, but also affordable too. And so as we've been talking, I've been moving a little bit slow this week and thinking a little bit slow, but I was thinking back to one of the topics we were talking about earlier, um, both your field studies. So before we kind of wrap up the interview, can you tell us a little bit about how you forecast and how you decide where you're going during your field studies? Yeah, the, the logistics are actually a fair bit challenging. So we are a, a good distance away from from essentially what is Tornado Alley or the Great Plains. Uh, we like it out there, you know, good road networks, good visibility, although we are going to try to explore some southeast tail. There's some some environmental questions that we have that I think we're going to try to tackle that. So we basically have to rely on medium range forecasting. Um, so we're looking for just general pattern support for severe weather. So is the Gulf of Mexico open? Is there good moisture transport northward? Maybe not necessarily if there's a trough, but is there just generally enough flow aloft to support supercells? Sometimes you didn't have the surface features underneath the best flow aloft. It, it, it kind of became a day-to-day, -day, almost a mesoscale type forecasting scenario, which is very hard for us in terms of when we pull the trigger. Uh, so we, we work our teams on about a 48-hour leave or 48-hour kind of um, go, no-go scenario. Um, using GFS output, Euro output, try to get our best feel um, that we're going to get at least three operation days out of a mission. We got to have some kind of confidence that we're at least going to get three. It's just not worth shipping equipment out um, 
and bringing the team to the field. So, okay, say we give a go. Um, we actually ship five big Pelican cases of equipment. FedEx is fantastic. Um, out to some target cities, and it's usually where we can store equipment. So Norman, Oklahoma at the National Weather Center have lots of colleagues there. Uh, we've used my wife's uh, um, grandma's garage in Wichita to store all the cases and equipment. Um, so we do that, pick our target city, fly in. Um, we use rental vehicles. Um, we do try to stay out of the hail as much as we're, we're researching hail. And we've done a pretty good job of that. Um, and we outfit them, get our instruments ready, take all the equipment we need, leave the cases behind and off we go. And usually each mission is about seven days. So there is some logistical challenges there, um, given our distance, uh, but we've, we've managed it quite well over the years. When you're renting the car, do you have to kind of stay quiet about what you're really doing with the car? Yeah, yeah. There's one hail. We were out in the field for a hail event in Cheyenne, and, and I, this the poor rental car dealership at the Denver airport. They were dealing with a whole bunch of people who were bringing back hail damaged cars, and I kept thinking to my head, "I'm like, we're running a hail research project, and we got perfectly fine vans here." Um, but yeah, for us, it, it's it's not a, it's a safety concern to stay out of the hail, and we we do a good job of that. Um, and that's the the luxury of having deployable instruments. You can be out ahead. Um, you can get them down without that concern, and. Um, yeah, we've been able to do it um, safely and efficiently for a while now. I'm assuming you don't wear that shirt when you pick up the rental car, do you? Uh, usually not. I, I don't know. It's it's kind of a, a, a joke amongst the team to not say any, not say the H word uh, or have any of your stuff that has our, our hail logos on it. But that's that's kind of a joke. It, it's um, it, it's been it's been real easy dealing with that. And, and I. I to be honest, we haven't had any major damage to one of the vehicles in, in the whole project's history. So I'll knock on, on my, my table here that that continues. Um, but um, yeah, safety for us is always number one and staying out of the big hail is certainly a part of that. I'm not sure how much proprietary information you can give out, but you're talking about these instruments. Can you kind of give us an idea of what's on these instruments, what, yeah. what, what, what it's like? Yeah, certainly. They're... Um, they're on little tripods. They're basically little engineering tripods. And then the plate itself is a little small pyramid. It's one foot by one foot. And it's actually based on a design that was developed at NASA, uh, Kennedy Space Center, and, and was published in the literature. Uh, so we use that same plate design. It's got a little acoustic sensor, a piezoelectric disc um, that can record the vibration of the plate. So the higher the, the signal amplitude of that vibration, the larger the kinetic energy of the hailstone that hit the plate. And then we can work backwards to estimate a size. The unique thing about ours, we actually use robotics microcontrollers as our data system. It's called, we use an Arduino Do. It's about 35 bucks, uh, a lot of maker components. Um, we needed to make them cheap so we can have a bunch of them. Um, and it samples really, really fast, about uh, 5,000 times per second. Uh, so we can actually resolve impacts at five hundredths of a second. Uh, so that's pretty neat. And it's got some switches for on, off, and data control to make it easily user-friendly. Um, I think we set a record for deployment time of one of these this year in under 20 seconds. Um, I'm going to give out a shout-out to Hank Pogorzelski, who's in our Tampa office, who's been with us in the field every single year since we started. Hank went out the door, set the probe up, and was back in the car before I could log the information of where the actual instrument was. So it had to be somewhere in the 15- to 20-second range. So... Uh, big old tip of the cap to Hank. I think he set a, a time speed record there. As you guys continue to do this, I know you're talking about uh, commercialized roofing is something you're you're wanting to look at. 
Um, as you guys look for the next three, five years down the road, what are some other research items that you are wanting to, to look at and kind of explore and, and get better information about? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So we're going to do some more work also on metal roofing material. Um, you could think tiles also something that's out there, especially in like Southwest Texas, the Austin San Antonio corridor. Um, you know, commercial roofing. There's lots of different products that are that are out there um, that we can we can look at. Um, wall wall cover. Um, we see a lot of damage to vinyl siding from especially wheel events. Um, we don't know quite a whole lot of shoulder. I also don't know, you know, brick veneer, does it ever get chipped by big hail? Because that's a very expensive thing that, that uh, you might have to replace. Um, windows themselves, you know, a lot of people ask about windows. It's using windows and on solar panels actually have to meet a, a hail test standard, which is a, a pure ice impact. Uh, but the fact that it has to meet an impact test and code is, is pretty important. Uh, so we may not delve into that arena, but we'll see. Uh, so lots of different roofing materials out there. And I could even see us uh, starting some partnerships, maybe even with the Highway Safety Institute and looking at auto and, and maybe auto glass um, in terms of hail impact. So we have that capability and we'd love to partner with them down the road. Yeah, that would be really interesting. I believe here along the coast, uh, along the coastal communities, a lot of the. And that's all it takes. Um, and then we're in good shape and the, and the manufacturers come up and raise the bar. So um, we'll see where it goes over the next 10 years or so. Well, Ian, we, we've certainly appreciated um, you giving us some of your time tonight. If our followers want to continue the research you guys are doing or follow along, how can they do that? Yeah, so we got a couple ways. So first of all, if you're if you're a consumer out there and you want to see some of these DIY resilient type solutions and things you can do for your home, go to disastersafety.org. That's our kind of front-facing consumer website. Uh, for some of the research work, you can go to ibhs.org. <laughs> Uh, but please follow us on Twitter at Disaster Safety. You can also follow our hail research um, specifically at IBHS Hail Study. Um, you'll get a kind of an inside look on that Twitter account as to what we're doing in hail, uh, especially the field projects. When we're out in the field, you can almost get nearly a real-time play-by-play. We produce a lot of neat videos on the fly explaining what we do. Uh, so please check those out. Um, there's a lot, a lot of good stuff out there. You can follow us on Facebook. Uh, find us out there. You'll see all sorts of videos from all the testing we do illustrating uh, how damage can happen in these severe weather events and trying to put people inside these different hazards uh, to show them, you know, we'd rather damage stuff in the lab than out in the real world. So um, that's our hope. So please give us a follow. We'd appreciate it. Well, Ian, I think we, we've had many guests on this show and I think you've got one of the coolest jobs because you get to, use potato guns and mix it with weather. I mean, I don't know how much better that can be. So <laughs> we, uh, we certainly appreciate your time. Stick around if you want to. We're going to uh, talk some weather news. Earlier uh, in the show, I'd mentioned that we had uh, the National Weather Service in Raleigh had um, confirmed two tornadoes. We had an EF0 in Willow Springs, North Carolina. That's located in Wake County. It was a 1.2 mile uh, path for the tornado with maximum winds of 85 miles per hour. There was some trees and uh, fences that were damaged and also some minor damage to homes there in the Wake County area, as well as an EF1 tornado located in Johnson County. This was about 11 miles southwest of Clayton. Uh, this was an EF1 with 90 mile per hour winds 
and again uh, some trees down and a little bit of damage to some homes and shingles and siding so uh, thankfully no major catastrophic damage out of those uh, tornadoes as you can see right now on the screen uh, we are showing you some uh, uh, some video from our uh, weather stem camera in Greenville North Carolina it was showing the storms moving through yesterday and you kind of see that wall of water and rain and wind coming towards the camera. So some pretty uh, nasty storms that rolled through eastern North Carolina and as well as northeast South Carolina. Speaking of northeast South Carolina, Georgetown County Emergency Manager, 30-year um, vet, veteran Sam announced today that he is retiring. Um, after uh, 30 years of service, he will retire on August 30th. He was named South Carolina Emergency Manager of the Year for the year 2011 and 2013. Uh, he's guided residents, tourists, and businesses alike through tropical weather, tornadoes, winter weather, and flooding. And he plans to be a volunteer for the Emergency Management Service after he retires. So once an emergency manager, always an emergency manager. So we appreciate Sam and uh, the work that he's done there in Georgetown County. They've used, um, used his expertise a lot here lately. Uh, with the numerous tropical systems that's affected uh, coastal South Carolina. Uh, Governor Cooper, Roy Cooper, announced uh, a couple of days ago additional funding for Hurricane Florence recovery, $3.1 million in disaster recovery for workers, uh, worker grant. Uh, this grant will allow folks who uh, need a, need work to team with organizations, nonprofit organizations who need workers. So um, that pairing being able to kind of meet up Bladen, Hoke, Scotland, Robertson, and Richmond counties along the Lumber River, the hardest hit communities in those areas are looking uh, for folks who can uh, join these nonprofit organizations and help folks get back up on their feet. And then finally in the news department, last Thursday, July 20th, a severe thunderstorm rolled through Pickens County, South Carolina. It caused uh, a house that was under construction, construction to collapse. Uh, unfortunately, there was two fatalities and also two injuries with that storm that rolled through Pickens County. I believe those winds are around 70 to 80 miles per hour as the severe thunderstorm moved through the area. So as Ian was talking about and something that we uh, kind of talk about here on the show, uh, wind is wind no matter if it's rotating or blowing in a straight line. So you need to take those severe thunderstorm warnings seriously uh, because they can create uh, some devastating winds that uh, move through the area. So that's kind of a look at the weather. Uh, news for this weekend. Shay, I'm going to toss it to you. Uh, we had Tropical Depression 3 for about, what, 24 hours, and then it's kind of kaput. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think even less than that. It was more about, I think, about 12 or maybe 16 hours or something by the time morning rolled around. The NHC had downgraded it, I think, by 11 a.m. So it was, um, yeah, Tropical Depression 3. It formed um, just uh, over central Bahamas moved to the Northwest Bahamas and started to go up the coast off of uh, Florida and then fell apart. So that one was expected not to strengthen. So the NHC again, hats off to them for getting that one. Correct. It was, it was a little uncertain. It blew up one day. We thought that maybe the chances were falling. Then all of a sudden it was escalated, but um, they called it just right. Now we're looking at an area over the Gulf of Mexico and I'll share a screen on that. Uh, this, this area has a, it's been down, uh, taken down to about a 10% chance develop but really what it this is is a cold front that's just been laid across the gulf of mexico and anytime we have something like this especially in july as we get into uh, the latter half of the dog days of summer anytime we see a cold front come off of the coastline over warm waters even off the carolina coast we have to start watching all areas so there is a, an area in the gulf right here in hc it's been taken down to a 10 percent chance it was 20 percent chance earlier 
Now it's down. It doesn't look like a whole lot's going on there. Just a lot of disorganized troughing. Uh, we were looking to see if maybe a surface low would develop off of that, and there's still a very low chance that it could, but it looks like this front is for the most part going to fizzle out. Elsewhere across the Atlantic, it's very quiet, as you can see. The five-day, this is the five-day graphical outlook, so nothing in the main development region out here off of Africa and the equatorial uh, Atlantic as of right now. The monsoonal trough is, is pretty steady, but it's been in training with dry air from the Saharan dust. Um, so as we get a little bit later, we start getting to late July and into early August, the Cape Verde season starts to come into play where that monsoonal troughing starts to lift up towards the Cape Verde Islands at that latitude, and we start to see more activity and uptick in activity. So that's that's kind of where we are right now. We're pretty quiet for the moment, and we're just going to enjoy that. All right. Thank you, Shay, for that. You were talking about that cold front. Um, that cold front ushered in much cooler weather here in the Carolinas. And Evan, uh, you live up in the Asheville area, and it was quite chilly up there this morning. Yeah, we really had the best of the whole uh, cold front situation up here. I woke up this morning, and it was 51 degrees outside, so it really felt a whole lot more like fall today than it did mid-July. Um, which I know for everyone across the Carolinas is a nice break, but it's been hot as Hades out there for the last two to three weeks. Um, so I think once again tonight, we're looking at clear skies across most of the Carolinas with lows in the mountains of South Carolina and North Carolina in the mid 50s, mid upper 50s, and then even down to the lower 60s um, in the, uh, the, say the Piedmont of North Carolina, um, and then maybe mid 60s, upper 60s down to Charleston. That's more of Shea's domain. Yeah, we're, we're like, you know, near 70 degrees at nighttime, low 70s. That's good in the middle of July. Let me tell you, that's that's pretty good. We're used to low 80s where your mean average is around 90, right? So, you know, <laughs> we're we're loving this. This mid to upper 80s is, is a walk in the park. Everyone's outside today eating lunch at work and they're just enjoying the weather. So, yeah. There's a beautiful breeze, too. That's helped it feel even even cooler. Anyways, that is the cool air sky. Yeah, it was uh, quite chilly, and like Evan said, we're going to see that for the next uh, couple of mornings uh, before we start to warm up over the weekend. It looks like the heat, maybe a little bit of humidity creeps back into the forecast early next week, but no oppressive humidity values like we've seen over the past week or so. And also, it's going to be pretty calm weather-wise, so I can kind of cover the weather for everyone. Uh, we expect to see uh, mainly uh, sunny to partly cloudy skies through the weekend, Temperatures in the 80s, maybe approaching 90 degrees in eastern North Carolina and also the Midlands and towards the coastal areas of South Carolina and North Carolina. So pretty calm, benign weather for the area. Uh, and then uh, we start to see uh, the chance for some uh, warmer temperatures and humidity and those pop-up showers and storms uh, as we go into early next week. So that's kind of the weather story for here in the Carolinas. And I think after the storms we've had over the past couple of days, it's it's time for a little bit of break and everybody can enjoy the weather. So uh, we've been getting some of your questions and comments tonight. Uh, we had one comment uh, thanking us for uh, airing a, this show about the hail because they just had to file a hail claim from a recent thunderstorm in western North Carolina. So uh, kudos to uh, Ian bringing some information that she found very helpful. So uh, we appreciate that. We appreciate all your questions and comments. And uh, something we've been hearing about over the past couple of weeks is we've noticed your podcasts aren't up to date. And so, Tim, it looks like we've got that figured out. And so I'll let you kind of talk about that. 
Yeah, thanks, Scotty. Sorry to all our listeners out there that happened to notice that uh, we had a couple of technical malfunctions and other things going on, but uh, all our podcasts are up and running on Anchor.fm, and it's a great platform for listening and uh, catching up on all our shows and all our special reports. Um, but all our podcasts and special reports are published on all your favorite apps, Spotify, Google Play, Music, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, and uh, Apple Podcasts. So, you know, Go listen, leave us some reviews, leave us some comments. You know, you can call in and leave us voice messages, concerns. Did you witness some crazy severe weather? Or maybe you have a suggestion for future show topics, you know, just check out the show notes and look for the links or comment on your favorite social media page. Um, and soon we're going to be launching a listener support program to accept donations for all the hard work all our panelists are doing and uh, help cover future expenses and things like that. So, uh, you know, like a good uh, a good TV company once said, you know, we're supported by viewers like you. So, you know, you hopefully hope you can uh, look for that in the upcoming months. So thanks, Scotty. Back to you, man. Yeah, thank you, Tim. And one other thing you can do with uh, giving us your comments in the next couple of months, you guys know uh, hurricane season really ramps up and we're going to be covering the 30th anniversary of Hurricane Hugo. So if you have any stories, maybe some pictures, videos you would like to share with us, let us know. Send them to us on social media. Uh, you can reach out to us. We'll give you an email address that you can email those pictures or videos or your uh, your memories of the uh, the hurricane. And who knows, you may see them uh, aired in our uh, Hurricane Hugo 30th year anniversary show. So we'd love for you to do that as well. Speaking of hurricanes, before we wrap up tonight, next week we have Mark Suddeth on. Uh, we had Mark on, I think it was back in uh, December. Oh, my dog's barking, so someone must be at the door. Uh, we had Mark on, and uh, Mark was talking about uh, Hurricane Michael in Florence and some of the uh, the footage that he uh, he got from that. Well, with that, he's created a documentary. And so Mark's going to be talking about that and let us know about his documentary. Maybe even see some uh, a few clips of his documentary. And uh, so we're ex expecting to have... A really good, uh, insightful show next week with Mark. So we hope to uh, to see you again with us next Wednesday night here on the Carolina Weather Group, 8, 15 p.m. Eastern time. So until then, we hope you have a great weekend. Enjoy the uh, cooler and less humid air, and we'll see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group.